Welcome to the Book Evangelist podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode five, in which we will be discussing Dodger by Terry Pratchett. Good morning, Marianne. Good morning, Lissa. It's another early morning. Uh, really feels extra early to me. Uh, last night was one of those nights around here where we had tornadoes. And although we're fine right here at our house, there was a lot of hauling self down to basement, hauling self upstairs, hauling self down to basement, hauling self upstairs. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of mainlining caffeine this morning and maybe incoherent. And it was scary to watch the radar because a tornado touched down in between where I live and where you live. That's right. And a that's... big one that was on the ground a long time. Yeah, that's a lot of stress. To it was. About. It, it kind of, the one that was headed, it was headed straight for us and it, it kind of stopped and jumped over us and landed on the other side and started again. So, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, extra, extra thrilling. So I'm just kind of. Uh, winging it today. So you're going to do lots of brilliant talking and I'm going to sit over here and mainline caffeine. It's a plan. Okay. Sounds good. So today we are talking about Dodger by Terry Pratchett. Um, how did we choose this book? Uh, because of me, I guess. I listen to audiobooks all the time, particularly while I'm driving in the car and or doing dishes or whatever. And a lot of the books that um, I had been wanting to listen to had holds on them. So I needed a stopgap book. And I thought, oh, I want some Terry Pratchett. So this one was available. And I checked it out on audio. It's a, a little bit of an older book. came out in 2012, I think. And I enjoyed it so much, or was enjoying it so much. I was in the middle of it, I think, that I recommended it to you. And you thought it sounded like a great idea. I did. It was actually already on my phone. I'd bought it in Audible a while huh. back and never listened to it. Huh. And uh, so then I just hit play. There you go. And I was thinking it's actually, despite being older, it's surprisingly topical because Terry Pratchett is topical because of the release of Good Omens as a limited series on Amazon Prime, which is a book that he co-wrote with Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman was the writer and showrunner for that a limited series. And having known you and your reading taste for a while, Neil Gaiman is always topical for you. Is always topical for me, yes. Have you read Good Omens? Um, I listened to like at least half of it before we discussed it. it in book club once. Ah, there you go. Good for you. Good for you. It's a, it's like early Terry Pratchett and really early Neil Gaiman, maybe like really early. Um, and it's a book that I like uh, very much. I know that Good Omens is like uh, a touchstone for a lot of people. It's really, really meaningful to a lot of people. And I would say that I think it's it's a good and entertaining book. And I'm looking forward to the series. 
and seeing what changes they made and what stayed the same. That's always the fun of a series. Yeah, it is. It's to check the adaptations against your own uh, <laughs> reckoning of it. That's right. So, Dodger, do you want to uh, read us the Goodreads synopsis, or would you like me to do that? Why don't you read it dramatically? Oh, dramatically? That, that is asking a lot here. I'll or read it. Know. I'll read it. Feeling. I'll read it competently. How about that? Yeah, I'll take that. Okay. So here is what Goodreads has to say about Dodger. A storm. Rain-lashed city streets. A flash of lightning. A scruffy lad sees a girl leap desperately from a horse-drawn carriage in a vain attempt to escape her captors. Can the lad stand by and let her be caught again? Of course not, because he's Dodger. Seventeen-year-old Dodger may be a street urchin, but he gleans a living from London's sewers and he knows a jewel when he sees one. He's not about to let anything happen to the unknown girl, not even if her fate impacts some of the most powerful people in England. From Dodger's account, encounter, pardon me, there you go, with the mad barber Sweeney Todd, to his meetings with the great writer Charles Dickens and the calculating politician Benjamin Disraeli, history and fantasy intertwine in a breathtaking account of adventure and mystery. Beloved and best-selling author Sir Terry Pratchett combines high comedy with deep wisdom in this tale of an unexpected coming of age and one remarkable boy's rise in a complex and fascinating world. Yes. I think it did all those things. I think it did do all those things. I like the description more now, having read it, and I re-listened to parts of it this morning, actually, um, because the whole thing feels like an inside joke a little bit. It does. It presumes that the reader knows certain stuff, like books and English history. Um. But it worked okay if you didn't. Yeah, I guess so. I I happen to have both those things in my pocket. So, um, so if you're making Benjamin Disraeli jokes, I get them. I did not get any of the <laughs> Benjamin Disraeli jokes, but I trusted that you could, you know, tell me that they were funny later. Yeah, you know, he's... and I trusted that I was missing out on things that were funny. Yeah, because yeah, it was Terry I... Pratchett. I was thinking it kind of reminded me in some ways of Assassin's Creed, which, um, of which I have played a couple of installments of Assassin's Creed, and some of them more than once. But the, the English Assassin's Creed, which is Syndicate, has Charles Dickens in it, and Benjamin mm-hmm. Disraeli in it, and Queen Victoria in it, and things like that. So you get to see the whoever it is that makes Assassin's Creed's version of those people historically moving around and saying things and having adventures. Um, and this is kind of similar to that except book form where you're taking those people and, and transporting them into this fictional environment. Um, I think it's so interesting how we explore our past stories like as a culture like we could read historical fiction about it. We can read historical mm-hmm. nonfiction about it. We can read actual newspapers from the time about it. We can play video games that play through alternative storylines of it. Like yeah. people are, people are interesting. I was, um, you know, I've been taking a Neil Gaiman masterclass, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more later, but he said in one of the lessons that all writing is fantasy. 
he says, you know, everything. Because he says it's either about you know, people you made up in places that you made up. Or even if you're writing about real people, you are putting those people in situations that they were never in and putting words in their mouths that they never said. Um, even maybe, in his opinion, maybe even like newspaper accounts or magazine accounts or whatever, because you are filtering that story through the writer and then filtering it through the reader so that maybe you can never capture reality, reality, because it's different for each of us. But it is fun I, to see how they look at it. So. It is fun. I find that um, like super intriguing as a writer and a reader and super overwhelming and scary as a human <laughs> trying to like have better communication skills in the world. <laughs> <laughs> like Neil Gaiman is definitely not writing healthy communication self-help books when he says things like that. But at the same time, he kind of is. Maybe he is. He says your reality is your reality and it's not anyone else's reality. So Right? Active listening is still going to be like you repeat back and they still hear what they think they said. And you That's still right. Say, right? But then applied to fiction, it becomes beautiful and art, which seems much easier and, somehow. And neater as well. Because neater, if, if yeah. you're writing a Charles Dickens, you can pick and choose what you want him to be. A real person like Charles Dickens gets reimagined in these various ways. For example, in the Assassin's Creed game, Charles Dickens has a plot line of several adventures that the assassins go on to help him out. And that Charles Dickens is very interested in spiritualism and ghosts and things like that. And those adventures all revolve around that. And I'm sure that the real Charles, Charles Dickens was interested in that, but that's not all of Charles Dickens. And then you get this Charles Dickens, who is very interested in uh, social justice, maybe, and this, the street life of real people in London. And Dodger describes him as being like an okay person because he really understands the real life of poor people as opposed to people who just think they do. And interestingly enough, in the book I am I am personally currently writing, Charles Dickens is kind of tangential. And in writing it, I've had to make some decisions about who Charles Dickens is in my world and um, what he means. And I don't know yet kind of what I'm going to do with him. One thing is that I think that in real life, Charles Dickens was probably a problematic person. Like women in Charles Dickens novels only come in two varietals. There's like the, the, the virginal pure maiden. And then there is the crabby old bossy pants lady, Harridan, you know, beating you with frying pans and, and being awful. Oh, I know. And that's that's it for women in Charles Dickens. You're one or you're the other. And in his personal life, he was not the nicest person in the world to be married to, uh, probably. So that sort of thing is is bleeding through into my own narrative regarding Charles Dickens and who he is, the great writer and also probably a problematic individual. Uh, but I guess you can't when you're going to create a, a, a version of this person, there's probably not enough room to encompass all that he is. So you have to pick and choose 
who you want that person to be. And then twist it to fit your story. And twist it to fit your story. Which you get to do and which Terry Pratchett got to do. Ta-da! And which which the Assassin's Creed people get to do. And which all of the readers get to do when they try to reconcile. I mean, I think that's a thing that we talk about a lot these days. Like, do you judge the books you're reading, like, by their author's political Twitter bins? Right, 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 right. Um, Like, it's a thing we do very openly and publicly these days. Right. Um, But in the past also, like, do we still read that person because they were powerful or interesting or influential or good or Mm -hmm. bad? Yeah, um, it's it's the the separating of the art from the artist, and um, whether or not you believe in like the death of the author, you know, is should the work stand on its own or should you read it in context of of the person who wrote it? What do you think on that topic? Uh, I think my opinion is still out. <laughs> On that one, I take, I take it on a case by case basis. I, I guess I kind of do too. I will say on the the modern um, fallen idols of the writing world who have done bad things. I guess my feeling is that things that they wrote that I love, I'm going to continue to love, but I'm not going to buy their next one. Does that seem okay? Yeah, some it, of it historic, is a financial decision. Historically, you know, I think you take a look at. Um, Oh gosh, there's there's so many of them. There are so many of them. Ooh. It's so tricky. <laughs> They've turned out to be rat things. I'm like, well, I read this book and I like this book. Or if I think this book should we teach it in schools um, or not? And, right. and, and I'm just talking. I'm just talking modern writers, and this is not even getting into like historical writers. Like, should people read Tom Sawyer? Should people read Huck Finn? Which I think they should, by the way. Um, but not the end of Huck Finn. It has a I bogus mean, ending. Just, it has a bogus it ending. It has a bogus ending. Like, you can still skip that. <laughs> you can still skip. I guess so. Or you can recognize who's the real hero in this story who is not Huck Finn. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but it's always had a bogus ending. Uh, but, but I like... Well, you can teach kids to read things critically. Yeah. Like, Huck Finn has a bogus ending and also... <laughs> Just kind of go from there. Yeah, and may, maybe Mark Twain was doing the best that he could for the time that he was in. You know, he needed a marketable book that featured Tom Sawyer. At True, the end. but he's also, you know, uh, the hero of the book being a former slave is pretty forward thinking for when he's writing it. Yeah, you know, for sure. The only hero, the really heroic person in this book, who is not Huck Finn. Um, although I do like that book, I have to say. No. I do too. Now we need to. Oh man, road books. Talking about books is so tricky. <laughs> we have to go, go read them all. Read them all. Yeah. Uh huh. So anyway, so yeah, so so using real historical people in fictional narratives, I know a lot of writerly people who worry about getting sued for using real historical people in fictional narratives. Uh, and are afraid to like quote people or reimagine them. And I'm like, if you can write Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, I think you're safe. You know, Um, I wouldn't, I know last, was it last time or time before we were talking about Shoeless Joe and J.D. Salinger, who was still alive when that book was written. And that's, you know, treading dangerously there. But I think Charles Dickens has been dead long enough that it's okay to, 
make him into your fictional character. Yeah, and writing it like revenge fantasy versus something that's reimagining a historical narrative is probably also, there's some intention there and some artistic value. I don't know. I don't know how to like make a pronouncement about what is what is okay and what is not. Yeah, but, but I, know it's like, I know it's something people worry about in in fiction, particularly writers that I know of historical fiction that's based on real events um, and like I don't know if you're writing a, a pirate adventure and you'll work for Elizabeth the first is it okay to to do that I'm like I can't imagine why not but I know people get wrapped around the axle about it but you know what's about to be hot maybe like the 80s ooh, ooh, ooh. and nostalgia yeah and a lot of those people are still alive. still alive and maybe still have like functioning careers and reimagining them or even writing them fictionally starts to become a lot. Yeah, to yeah, I, th- I think I might uh, might take a flyer on that one. So, yeah, but a bit tricky. you know, when Ready Player One was being made into a movie, or I heard it was being made into a movie, I thought, how in the world are they going to license this? It's a licensing nightmare. It's a licensing wonderland. Just the but if you're making a movie, the expense of licensing. All of that stuff. And I noticed when... Have you seen the movie since it came out? Yes. Okay. I did see the movie. I noticed that a lot of things were uh, compressed or a lot of them belonged to Warner or whoever made the, the picture. Like movies that were referenced belonged to the people who... The company that made Ready Player One. Yeah. So that it was easy to get that done. Yes. Okay. I tried to pretend that was all artistic license <laughs> so that... Um, so that the movie made a lot more movie references and the book made a lot more book references. That's a nice I tried to pretend that that was the interpretation. That's I also good. had to shut my eyes a lot of that movie. Why? Uh, well, like the the whole part where they show The Shining, like I'd never even seen that movie. Oh, I so, have. So trying to like <laughs> figure out what I was getting out of that scene, I just like kind of looked at the floor the whole time. Yeah, I you know, I don't usually watch scary movies because... Uh, I can't handle it, and uh, but I have seen The Shining, and it did not scare me as badly as some do. And maybe that's a bad sign, since I did, you know, grow up to be a writer and stuff. That I don't find stories about writers going bananas and axing their whole family to be that scary. Um, yeah, maybe I should seek counseling. Oh no, we'll just talk. About that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Everybody knows that's just as effective. <laughs> just as effective. Well, maybe not just. If, if I lie down while we record the podcast and talk to you, that will help, too. Yes. It's totally a thing, as long as your microphone still works. Yes. So, we have real historical people in this book. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you want to come back to that or continue talking about them. I did want to talk about one other of them. Yeah. Who's your favorite? Well, I was super excited to see Joseph Bazalgette appear in oh, this yes. book. Oh yes, explain this to me because I didn't look it up because I knew I could just ask you. Yes, I was listening to this and Bo- Joseph Bazalgette showed up and I immediately texted my daughter who is a high school girl and she was like, oh, Joseph Bazalgette just showed up in the book that I'm listening to and she was like, OMG, I need the book right now. This is so exciting. Joseph Bazalgette was, Which I thought was adorable. The whole <laughs> the whole exchange was adorable. It was and also weird. <laughs> and also weird. And it made me wonder, like, 
do I have a particularly weird teenage girl? And he answers, probably yes. Joseph Bowsjet was a, a Victorian civil engineer who is responsible for the construction of London's modern sewer system. There you go. And he is a huge hero of my daughter who was involved as a middle schooler with a project called Future City, which is an engineering competition that takes every year a different problem that confronts modern cities and uh, asks you to design a city that that solves or confronts that problem or finds new ways. And hers was about, one year was about um, recycling or waste disposal or something. And the whole city was named Basiljet. And it had a whole, it was a beautiful model, it had a beautiful moving construction of, of how to, to recycle everything and, and move, um, you know, trash and waste through that the whole city. And she, he's been a total hero of hers ever since. And I was just thrilled to see him show up in this book. I love it. You have great inside jokes with your kid. <laughs> Very inside joke in that case. And this was a case where I was like, okay, most people reading this book are going to know who Charles Dickens is, but what percentage are even going to know who Joseph Bazalgette is? Although sewers are a major player in this book. I know it kind of made me want to learn more and also made me feel like I had learned enough about sewers right there. There were a lot of sewer explanations. There are a lot of sewer explanations. So we have real people and then we have the reimagining of a fictional character who is the artful Dodger. Which I've not read Oliver Twist since like 10th grade, ninth grade. Yeah. I'm not sure that I have either. Um, and I'm sure most people understand it best through the movies. I'm um, not even sure I've seen movies. <gasps> I mean, I've never seen movies, but <laughs> <laughs> I live for movies. So, um, so did this character fit for you? Cause I like looked up about the artful Dodger and it didn't seem like this person in this book might turn into the artful Dodger. Cause this person, in this book was going to like maybe be happy. I think that, that the person in this book kind of starts closer to the original Artful Dodger in the book and that he's, you know, uh, kind of sketchy, um, a thief, a liar, so forth. And he grows into somebody else. Besides the Artful Dodger. Besides the Artful Dodger. Okay, that makes sense to me. See what I mean? Like, yes. And maybe maybe this is some sort of commentary from Terry Pratchett about opportunity. Because Dodger is he's smart, but has no education. Like, he can barely read. He'll tell people he can't read at all. But he can kind of pick out things and slowly read and write things over time. But he encounters lots of new ideas and new people and new ways of thinking. And he's able to apply his own innate intelligence to these new situations. Which I loved watching. Like, yes. It was such great character development to see how, how Terry Pratchett revealed Dodger to the reader and then how Dodger changes both. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, um, in some ways, a, a, a social comedy, I guess. I, I liked very much a moment where 
and I can't remember his name, Charles Dickens' friend who runs Punch Magazine, is referring to Dodger lives with a, a, a guy whose name is Solomon Cohen, who is a jeweler. I was going to say fence for stolen goods. Fence, but well, he's a moral folks. fence. He he won't. He prefers that that Dodger not steal things. But if something fell off the back of a wagon, you know, right. it would work. So, and he he is a an, a complex character. But Charles Dickens's friend who runs Punch Magazine, re- referring to Solomon Cohen, says, "Oh, your your friend who's of the Jewish persuasion." And Dodger says, "I don't think he took much persuading. I think he was born Jewish." which is a beautiful joke um, and gives Dodger the moral high ground here yes. in a way like, like it was just a beautiful uh, piece of writing uh, that I appreciated very much. It was a, a commentary in, in, you know, reading between the lines on Victorian class structure and religious history and all that stuff coming in in a nice, neat little, package which terry pratchett is great at he is great at funny funny one-off lines that are also social commentary that are also poignant that also leave you thinking about class structure today later but also he made a joke yes which is why he's you know sentence which is why he's pretty spectacular let's face it you know yes um and maybe that's what gives his comedy staying power or legs is that he is not just cracking jokes for the fun of cracking jokes, but is, is having deeper meaning commentary behind really all of this. And that's what all of his books are. Yeah. I mean, the Discworld books have always been that. Um, it's I feel like it's him looking at the world, reflecting the current times through Discworld to tell us, to tell us how to look at it differently. Yeah. And what to look out for and how to get our act together. Yes pretty good but sometimes with magic or sometimes with charles dickens or you know wherever he sets it he still does that terry pratchetty thing to it so how can i become terry pratchett mm-hmm. you can't become <laughs> terry pratchett you have to become marion ringstra <laughs> right it. like terry pratchett brings his uh, brings his writer voice to whatever setting he has. Yep. And and such a wide range of of books by him. You know, there are some writers where if you pick them up, you know everything that's going to happen in a book before you start because they're all the same, which can be very comforting and I have no problem with it. I mean, you know, if I pick up a Lillian Jackson Braun cat mystery, I know exactly how that book is going to go. And sometimes that's what I'm looking for. But Terry Pratchett didn't seem to have any boundaries. I mean, he wrote all kinds of stuff about everything, uh, which is amazing. It is. Okay, so now I'm thinking, like, I love following certain authors on Twitter and then looking at their politics a little bit, I mean, when I agree with them, and then looking at their fiction and, and their science fiction, and then seeing how their everyday reactions to news show up in their imagined sci-fi speculative fantasy books. Okay. And so then sometimes I think, oh, I wish I could go back and, like, look at Terry Pratchett's Twitter from 1985. Um, 
you know, and see what his reactions to the news were. But then I think he does it so well that I can. I just look at his fiction and yeah, there it is. you know what he thinks. So it's interesting, the authors who choose to interact about daily life, to be able to pull that out. But if they're doing it really well, like Terry Pratchett, I don't necessarily need that. Like, I don't need to look at John Scalzi's Twitter to see to see his Terry Pratchettness, his views of the world, his his things he thinks we're doing wrong, his things he thinks we should do differently, because it's all there in his fiction. I am. Oh, there's your beeper. There is my beeper. I'm going to go get my bread and I'll be right okay. back. So I'm back from getting my bread. Sorry about that. <laughs> People who bake bread apparently do not also try to podcast at the same time. That's what I've learned on my morning off. Weirdly, I, um, you know, make sourdough from time to time. And it's like, oh, I should make some sourdough bread. And I thought, how am I going to work that into my schedule around podcasting? Because there's, you know, you got to proof it twice, and shape it. And, and so I didn't make any. So I'll just have to think about bread while you're eating bread. It's totally a plan. <laughs> everybody listening will need to make bread. They'll need to make bread. Listen. Yes. Listening to podcasts while making bread is probably a really good plan, unlike recording podcasts while <laughs> making bread, which we've learned is a bad plan. <laughs> well, it's an interesting plan. It's a real life plan, Lisa. You're, you're yeah. multi-talented. You can both make podcasts and bake banana bread. Um, really, no. We just keep having to pause. But my bread is all <laughs> out of the oven. Um. What authors would you read the uh, Twitter of? You know, the not living oh, ones, probably. The not li- well, interestingly enough, a long time ago, in my last stint in graduate school, I did a gigantic research project about uh, digital market conversations. I know that's, you know, super thrilling stuff, and, and it's just as boring as it sounds. But I went and looked at how different writers were using social media to connect with their readers. Right. And one, and I picked, for my sample set, I picked every mystery novel that was coming out in a specific quarter. And there was a reissue of uh, Agatha Christie. So I'm like, oh, this is going to you know screw me all up because Agatha Christie is, is very, very dead. Uh, she does not have the Twitter, does she? Yes. Uh, she has <gasps> some social media. I don't know if she has Twitter or not, but she had a surprisingly large amount of social media that whoever is running... Agatha Christie was producing. Kind of like old voter laws where you could vote for someone for three years after they died because you know how they would have voted had they been alive. Uh, it's kind of like that. So like what Agatha Christie has to say. And it and it made me think about like um, a V.C. Andrews who died really young and all those books were not written by V.C. Andrews despite having her name on them. They're written by other people. Or the Babysitter's Club. If you say so. I never read the baby, Babysitter's Club. I should probably just... Oh, it was like my business <laughs> model for customer service. I don't know. You know, I was living overseas and I just missed that. So um, I, I was hoping that the child who loves uh, sewers would in fact read the Babysitter's Club so I'd read them with her. But she just reads books about sewers. It's a better inside joke, Joseph <laughs> Basil get. It's lovely. Okay, so Agatha Christie has, has not some the Twitter, has but some, other I, things. May, I can't remember whether she has Twitter or not. I'd have to go read, reread my research. But yeah, she has some social media. So maybe they do. And I do follow uh, Jeffrey Chaucer and William Shakespeare on Twitter. So, And I can recommend Chaucer as a very funny guy. It, I don't follow any dead authors on Twitter. <laughs> but maybe I should. 
Chaucer is really lovely. Uh, you follow some living authors on Twitter, though. I do. And I like their books. And then I like their book recommendations. That's how I've been choosing new books. I wait for oh. you to tell me things. I've got a couple other readers. I wait to say, for them to say, oh, I'm reading such and such, or I want to read such and such, and then I read it. And then there's a couple authors where they say, this was great, or they give quotes for the cover. And then I go get those books. Oh, I just go to the library and I check out everything. I mean, that's how I get them. <laughs> <laughs> just like you get a basket and swoop them off the shelf into the basket and go, oh. So that's interesting. So, so these authors, when they're recommending books, are they writing books, recommending books by other people that if you like the tweeting author stuff, you will also like this other stuff? Or is it very I mean, different? they don't say it explicitly like that. They say more like, I like this thing, or you should read this thing. I got a book on hold uh, when I went to pick up my kids' holds, and I was like, what is this book? This is not for my kids. And then I was like, oh, wait, it's for me. Um, and it's a new book called Waste Tide. And on the front, I was like, oh, this is why I wanted it. Charlie Jane Anders gives the quote on the front. Mm. This is the futuristic vision that everybody needs right now. Huh. It is it a, so a fiction book? I was like, um, it is. It's a science fiction book. Um, but just from that, I was like, oh, an, an author I really like right now says I need this. Okay. Yeah. Good enough for me. Done. Ding, yeah, ding. good enough for me to try. That seems, and that's how I do. Like with recommendations from you, like if you think you're you're devoting your time to this thing right now, it's probably worth me at least seeing if I like. There you go. So if I'm enjoying listening to Dodger, you're willing to try Dodger. Yes, although it was also already on my phone, and I just had well, to try. It's handy. It was handy. <laughs> but it, like it's an old enough book that it will be out of the eternal line of holds you know that's probably true. although i have a book on hold right now that is several years old and it's just always the audiobook is always checked out so i just have to wait that's what i try to tell people at the library when they're on hold for like something that's not new it's like well you have good taste yeah. everybody you have to wait it. for it that's right yeah excellent excellent so there's always more Terry Pratchett to read. Are you going to read? <laughs> are you going to read more Terry Pratchett? I am. I'm. I've been a little remiss in my Terry Pratchett reading. Um, I always look back and I try to remember what is it that I have read, like in my life, and how did. Apparently, I'm fairly omnivorous because, in terms of fantasy reading, I read some fantasy as uh, maybe a middle schooler, very young high schooler, but it was all uh, like the Wizard of Earthsea and the Chronicles of Bredain, which I read as a, probably an elementary school child. But then I had a long gap in fantasy reading until fairly recently, the past several years. So I, I missed all the years that I would have been reading Terry Pratchett. I wasn't reading fantasy. I was reading other things. Um so, Mr. Paul, so I guess I have it all lined up, and he certainly wrote enough books to keep me busy for a long time. <laughs> it's true. I feel like sometimes they're harder to go back and read because they so reflect the current times. Um, the couple that I've really enjoyed, I read as they came out. Mm -hmm. um, I went to look at his list of books, and I think the first one I ever read was in 2004, which I found just on the shelves of the library on new books, um, and it was called Going Postal. And I'm absolutely sure I picked it up because in college I worked in a mailroom um, delivering mail in the School of Chemical Sciences <laughs> at the University of Illinois uh, for several years. Um, 
And so I wanted to read about other mailroom experiences. <laughs> um, and in 2004, going postal was totally a thing about workplaces. In a very, um, very topical phrase. In a very topical phrase. Um, and so I think that's why I first picked up Terry Pratchett. And then I know I read Thud and Making Money like as they came out. And then suspiciously, around the time I had my first kid, I stopped reading new books. <laughs> I wonder what could be the reason for that. I don't know. It was just so, the timing was so weird. <laughs> once in there. Um, but those three I read as they came out, and they were new and lovely. Um, but then I went back and listened to um, the audiobook of the first couple Discworlds. Um, but then filling in in between, it was a lot harder for me to connect with them because I, f- I felt like I needed to do a mini lesson on the times yeah. and then to get the jokes. If you're reading Discworld, then if you're just starting them now, do you read them in the order they were published or in their chronological order? There is like a giant internet. There's like several giant internet maps of how they're all related and recommended reading orders. Really? Mm-hmm. Ah, so what's the, uh, what's the pervading wisdom? Well, you can either read them where you like get groups of characters with similar similar groups of characters in the stories and sort of follow a group of characters, or you can read them in the order they came out in, or different people have very strong opinions. Okay. I, will I have, jump around. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, whatever's on <laughs> the shelf today. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Whatever catches my, fan- my fancy at that moment. That's never an official internet way to do it. Well, I mean, but if you're, if you're writing series books like that, the trouble is that everyone has to be able to stand on its own. So you have to strike the balance between not between giving a new reader who just wandered into this book enough information that they understand it and not boring your your loyal readers half to death re-explaining everything. Which is tricky. It is tricky. And I think less tricky in a world like Terry Pratchett's where there's a lot of world building, but also it's pretty consistent um, as far as the Discworld. Um, I think where that starts to really show is like the beginning of every new Janet Ivanovich novel mm. where they're like, oh, yeah. And did you know I like two guys and I <laughs> sort of flip between them and, and then that's great. And we all accept that as my reality. And it tries to re-explain it every time. Um, I think that's less great. Yeah. I mean, at least Terry Pratchett's world has some interesting depth to it when we explore it versus just here's my main character who sleeps around a lot. But like a Janet Ivanovich book in terms of like character arcs over that series, she cannot afford to have the characters arc much. Right. Because again, they're, they're like a book that has specific expectations. If you, if you read those, um, my sister reads them all. And I mean, I read like the first 18 yeah, or so. I have, yeah, I'm not a big reader of those, but yeah, but my, my sister reads them all, but, but she, there's a specific set of expectations. This is the experience that I'm going to have if I read this book. So you can't, have your character arch a lot. Like I used to read a lot of mysteries and I loved the Richard Jury books. Um, I am the only running footman and, and all the pub named books. But Richard Jury as a character did in Melrose Plant, his sidekick, ex-British Lord, Richard Jury in particular did arc a lot and change a lot over the series of the books. And I came to dislike him uh, where he got too complicated and messy because you know, the next step always has to be more dramatic. And it really impacted my pleasure in a cozy English mysteriness that I went to those books to get. Um, 
So I've had that happen with writers, not necessarily in series, but they started with like fun chiclet mm. and then they grew up and got married and had kids yeah. and their books got serious yeah. and complicated or thrillery or you know, they evolved as writers, but as a reader, I didn't want them to evolve as writers. I've had that happen with a couple of romance writers where I enjoyed the, you know, easily digestible candy of the romances yeah. that they were writing. And then they went into, you know, romantic suspense or or yes. whatever. I was like, Meh, not, no, no, not for me. I want you to write what I, what I expect of you. Right. Or they followed the paranormal trend when that's not a trend I wanted to follow. Right. Um, and which they can totally do. Sure, as absolutely. It just <laughs> you know, I'm like, stop growing. Yeah, stop growing and changing. You give me what I want. Don't try to be marketable. <laughs> this weird thing that I like. I like. What about my needs? We were being special together in our little weird place of happy writing. Here you go. Well, I mean, in a way, that's a form of of communication. Writers writing a specific thing. You're reading a specific thing, and you rely on that in the same way that they're communicating with you on Twitter. Where they're saying, right. here is the thing that I like. And you're saying, oh, good, I will try that because I trust you uh, right. and what you like. And then if they went and and if Charlie Jane Anders suddenly uh, recommended The Shining to you, you might... Then it better have a really good intro of why this is a thing. Why this is a thing, because that's not what you expect of her to, to right. offer to you. Right. So, yeah. We get it. We get it. Now, how do we do that? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know anything this month, to tell you the truth. We be ourselves. I think that's really it, right? Like those, I feel like those people that I trust their recommendations and I trust their like Twitter commentary on the world is because they're being themselves and I've connected with, with who they're presenting as themselves. Right. And that works. Yes, we... And we, when people it, are fake, it, it doesn't work. When we are writing our, our boring academic paper, we call that digital personality performance. Oh, digital personality. Yes, they're performing a personality for you in, in digital media that is presenting to you. Um, and in terms of like being yourself, it is the only way that you could do it as a writer, I think. I think if you try to write something that just isn't your thing, you're just miserable. Witness me, last NaNoWriMo, trying to write a romance novel because for fun, it was fun. Novel. But it turns out I just can't do that. And that, and that was painful. Um and I don't even know that it was that bad of a book. It was just really painful for me to write. I did not enjoy it. But I will tell you that in, on the writerly fears front that I worry a lot that the truth that is me and the thing that I'm interested and excited to write, sometimes I just worry that it's just too unusual or doesn't fit the market as the market stands, which doesn't mean the market won't turn into something else that is more receptive to me. Or that some editor doesn't buy your manuscript someday and then totally gut it and change yep. it. Which I've had happen to short stories and things where I had a story that I felt was as complete and the way that I wanted it. And I've had editors really drastically change things which I'm like, okay, you know, that's your job, and editor, do your thing. Uh, but it wasn't the same to me in terms of my voice saying my thing. So. I kind of hear 
in this conversation the same thing that readers experience when they go to watch the movie version. Yeah. And it's and it's adapted for a different audience. Like when we write it as authors, we try really hard, even if we use beta readers, even if we do lots of revisions, we try really hard to make it the thing that we want to put out into the world. But then if an editor, you know, in a publishing deal becomes involved, they get to make all the changes generally mm -hmm. to try to make it what they think they want to put out into the world. And, and then the movie version would do that even more. It's just interesting. So as long as this, this uh, we're having this conversation, it makes me wonder um, the impact of, of editors. There have been some great editors, right? Like Max Perkins, right. who edited Fitzgerald and Hemingway. So is Gatsby the same books book if Perkins doesn't do what he did to it? No. Including like the title and stuff like that. For a long time, I could reliably uh, finish a great YA romance um, and then in the back, it would say, thanks to my editor, David Levithan at Scholastic. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, right. yeah. that makes sense that I loved this book. Um, and now I'm like, oh, I wonder what those writers were actually writing. Producing compared to what but, he... You know, producing yeah. before this was produced by Scholastic. Right. Um, under this editor who, who works on projects I like, but how much influence is there there? But, and you know, I know a lot of, uh, like, indie authors who have cho one of the reasons they've chosen to go that route is because they get to say whatever they want to say in whatever way they want to say it as opposed right. to having an editor look at it and say these are the changes that I think that we should make right. uh, which is a double-edged sword because those editors do a darn fine job of cleaning up they your do. mess <laughs> they do. and also making it palatable to the reader yeah. in the way the reader expects and wants or the reader's been condition to expect or want. Uh -huh. That's the trick. Yep. 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 So originally in our podcast notes, you had something about feelings about writers' legacies and Terry Pratchett when he died. I did. All of his manuscripts were destroyed. They were. Terry Pratchett at the end of his life was suffering from, I can't remember what, it was Alzheimer's or... I think it was I Alzheimer's. I think it was Alzheimer's. And he, which is a very tragic thing, that he understood that he wasn't the same as he had been, you know, which is a terrible thing for somebody whose life is in the mind, like Terry Pratchett's was. And he put it in his will that he wanted all of his manuscripts and unfinished books and so forth to, to be destroyed after he was dead. And being Terry Pratchett did it in a spectacular way of having them like run over with a steamroller. Um, but, which is, awesome. which is awesome. But, it does make you, you wonder, if you have Fitzgerald, who we were just discussing, or Hemingway, there's all those papers. And like Fitzgerald's papers are at Princeton uh, University. And you can go there and you can study his papers. You can read his letters. You can look at all the different versions of Gatsby and all the changes that he made. And looking at a page of Fitzgerald's changes is amazingly instructive. So there's, I was wondering like, if you're a great writer, 
like Terry Pratchett, was just a great writer. Do you owe anything to your audience in terms of, or to future scholars, in terms of understanding your works through all those drafts and papers? Or is the work that you've produced the thing and you don't owe anybody anything else and they can just go and judge you based on that? I think as the writer, if you're lucky, you get to decide. And either way, you're dead. Either way, you're dead. But and it, I mean, not that it doesn't matter to you, but either way, your legacy becomes whatever your legacy becomes. So we like Fitzgerald because we can see all those changes. And, and we like Pratchett because he like had a giant tractor <laughs> over a hard drive. And then Shakespeare drives everybody bananas because there are the works, but there is not a lot else. Right. So and people are like, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does something else mean? And, and uh, processing those plays word by word, syllable by syllable, trying to, to tweak anything else out of it that they can. And those people rise to the top as possible models for our own future as writers. But ultimately, our legacies will be determined after we're not around to determine them. Yeah. Ugh. So philosophical and if I today. Ripe old age, I could have like sixty unpublished NaNoWriMo first drafts <laughs> that I've never. Edited, I will read them. I will read them. Which will be amazing. You can do whatever you want after I'm gone, Marion. <laughs> I'll just come like give me all the flash drives that have all the things. I could publish them all on on uh, Kindle and make a fortune and buy an island. You have my permission to do whatever you want. <laughs> Once I am no longer around to, to care, care about whatever it is. That's right. You no, know, you will not be around to be embarrassed by any naughty scenes you wrote or anything like that. Oh, I hope they were good. <laughs> um, is this the kind of thing you're learning in master class, like how to how to grant your legacy to others? And... Well, I my birthday uh, came, and uh, the beloved spouse bought me a pass to master class I can take all of them and, and the, the number one class I wanted to take was was Neil Gaiman of course of course and I have completed that and I've launched into uh, Dan Brown and I'm doing Billy Collins on the side even though I'm a terrible terrible poet just because Billy Collins is lovely and and stretching and growing and stretching in and growing in new ways good. and and I think paying attention to every word in the way poets do is probably good for for a prose writer, because it helps you feel the the rhythm and the sound of of what you're writing, um, when that enhances what you're writing. Uh, and what did I learn in Neil Gaiman's masterclass? Uh, gosh, good things. A Neil Gaiman is really lovely to, look, to listen to, and I would just listen to him all day, every day, because he has the most beautiful speaking voice. Uh, and I would rewatch the videos just to, to enjoy listening to him. And I've been in a real writing slump, uh, full of all the demons that, that you have. And the masterclass did really good things for me on that front because it set me small tasks to write, go away and write, you know, six or 800 words on this. And I wrote some things I really liked, um, that sound more like me than things have been sounding lately. That is exciting. And it is really, really exciting for me. And, and it's given me some little pieces of flash fiction that have given me pleasure and helped me look at things and see things in 
in new ways. And um, so it's really useful. And seeing his process and how he works through things was like character creation. Like I hate character creation worksheets. What's your character's favorite flavor of ice cream? Don't care. You know, if I ever need to know that, I'll figure it out. And I have never created characters that way. Although many people do, and it works for them. That's great. You go do your thing. But um, it drives me bananas to, to, do, to do that. Neil Gaiman sits and listens to his characters and hears their voice in his head. And once he knows what their voice is, he knows who they are. And I... That's really hot. Isn't that really hot? And I was like, no wonder <laughs> yes. every character in his books, he's like, this is why the characters in his books stand out from each other on the page is because they all sound different. And I thought, aren't you a clever boots? Because awesome. it is awesome. So there, there were things like that to think about and there would be exercises for just dealing with whatever this chapter was. And then there's exercises for your novel, for the thing that you are starting to write or in the middle of writing, why don't you go do this to it? Um, so it was, it was, I really enjoyed it and I feel like it helped me get back to who I am and, and what I'm, I'm doing here and taught me stuff. And um, I read so many writing craft books that it's hard to teach me anything on the teachy teachy front other than just saying, go write stuff, learn things. Um, so I was impressed that he was able to to give me new insights or new things to think about. Uh, Do you think that listening to him tell you was different as an experience? Do you think that was part of it? I mean, one that it was Neil Gaiman, but two that you that you heard him, saw him, whatever, tell you the things. Yes. Instead of you reading it in a book and sort of dismissing it well, as you read it. Well, he or... has big brown eyes that look like they. They really care about you, and that helps a lot. The last, <laughs> I know that seems sad. I'm so pitiful. The last three or <laughs> the last three or four lessons in the master class are really about um, getting out there and doing the thing, um, and believing in yourself and producing works. I have the booklet right here, so I'm going to see if I can just look up what those chapters are. Uh, let's see. Okay, chapter 17 was editing, so it's going to come right after that. There was rules for writers, like how to be a writer and produce the stuff, which is mainly um, you have to write, you have to finish what you write, you have to send it out to someone who could publish it, Lissa. You have to refrain from rewriting except for editorial request. When it comes back, you have to send it out again, and then you have to start the next thing. And those are... Heinlein's business rules plus the last one is Neil's rule. You have to start the next thing. So, um, yeah, the sending it away, experiencing rejection or letting other people read your work thing. And the keeping going was that lesson. And then the chapter of that is what the writer's responsibilities are um, in terms of what do you owe to people or your reader um, and like that. And those were really great pep talks to hear from him personally, I guess, if, you, if it can be personal, to see him and hear him say those words. And I will admit that 
in the past, before now, when I have needed a good kick in the pants or a pep talk, I have gone online and looked up Neil Gaiman's um, Make Great Art speech. It's a great speech. Yes, you know, uh, and listened to that to remind me to go make great art. So I like the part where Neil Gaiman maybe is more believable to you because he's not trying to, I don't know, become your editor or your publisher. He's not trying to sell you yes, necessarily he's, on his system. He's just trying he, to be my mentor. Yeah, he's trying to be your mentor. And that somehow makes it maybe easier to interact with his suggestions or to believe him or to try it. Mm-hmm. Because there's not an ultimate thing where you send him your manuscript right. or you... Right. When, like, one of the exercises that he told me to do was to take a fairy tale that I'm familiar with. And you had some choices of what to do with it. And I chose to rewrite it as a newspaper article. And I enjoyed that so much. But there was no pressure associated with it the way there is with, I guess, quote, serious... Not that anything I write is ever serious. Things that I'm working on, there was no expectation that I was going to send it out in the world and seek a home for it or um, you know, be, make it into my you know, great American novel or whatever. It's just a thing that we're doing to learn a, some stuff. And how I want to do it is fine. You know, whatever way I'm choosing to do it. That's what I love about NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm which I do kind of with that same mindset. But I think that shorter things would probably be also good. Mm -hmm. Um, And somebody else structuring the experiment a little bit. Yeah. That sounds really great. It is really great. I'm glad you did that. I am too. I would recommend it. I said I'm working with, I just started Dan Brown and he's really enthusiastic and personable. And um, yeah, so I, I like him too. He's not a writing god for me like Neil Gaiman is, but I, I like him <laughs> personally. And he's good, very good at like concrete tips seems to be his strength. And I hope to just work my way through every one of them on Masterclass that has uh, all the writing teachers. So maybe I'll be... Those are cool challenges. They are cool challenges. And they I try to do a little bit of that and then segue into things I'm supposed to be doing. Like a warm-up, like, like warm-up warm up exercises. Yeah, yeah. Do your yoga stretches and then lunch. How very healthy as a writer. <laughs> so that is your writing stuff. What have you been reading or planning to oh, read or not yeah, reading? It's been a sketchy reading month for me. I mean, I read Dodger, obviously, and Magic for Liars, which we discussed last time. And one craft book, uh, which is... How to Write a Novel Using a Snowflake Method. Because I always have a craft book going. And I read two giant science fiction novels, science fiction fantasy novels. One of which was Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which I had on audio. Uh, and it's often touted as the best fantasy novel ever written. Uh, and Foundryside by uh, Robert J. Bennett which is a big fantasy book as well. It's pure fantasy. Which you also did on audio. Yes, I did. Actually, <laughs> it's a big book. The audio book's 20 hours long. And I 
like I said, I listen in the car. So I tend to listen to audiobooks in little snippets of 15 or 20 minutes, which is awesome unless you have to give the book back to the library, uh, mm-hmm. which gives you a very generous three weeks to listen to things. But I, it, the book is so massive that I was very near the end when it auto-returned. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> When you no, have a physical well, object, yes. you can I can just, just like, I will pay your five it. cents a day to keep this the extra two days that I needed it. But it, yeah, when you have an audiobook checked out, it just just turns itself off. And I'm like, no, you could probably hear my screaming all the way over where you are. And I did check out the paper book of it, but I was enjoying the audiobook so much that I loved the the voice of it. That I decided I would wait for it to come back in. So I put a I'll put it back on hold and waited several weeks for it to come back around so I could listen to the last, you know, 80 pages on audio. Do you think I would like it? Maybe. Um, I, I, I worry about you, you know, in terms of like really violent books, but it's, it's the complete package. It, it really, really is. It, the world building is so terrific and the characters are interesting and he does such a beautiful job of doling you out the information that you need as you need it. Um, and it's, the pacing is beautiful. It's a, it's a terrific and, and complex and very scientific book. You probably would like it because the magic is very sciencey, almost like, like computer magic. programming. Um, I'm going to try it. Okay. You try. I'm not committing fully, but I downloaded the ebook. Oh, <laughs> you try it. it. Okay, excellent. How about you? What you've been reading? Um, so um, recently at my workplace, they encouraged us to put like, "What are you reading?" and then like that answer to that question, um, like "I'm reading this" in our email signatures, and I freaked out because um, I am not frequently in the middle of reading something. There are things I'm planning to read or things I need to read for a book club deadline or a podcast deadline. And then there are like things that I put on my phone in case I decide to read them. (laughs) But like to actually be in the middle of reading something, I I couldn't really commit to that. Um, So I filled in the question with like what I'm reading next for book club, which I haven't started at all yet. Which is what? Um, Oh, we ended up switching our titles at my library book club and we're reading... Out Stealing Horses, oh, yeah. um, which is like translated yeah. from a... Something Norse. Scandinavian yeah. kind of country. Yeah. Um, anyway, I haven't started it yet. I'll read it a couple days before book club. Um, but I have a ton of stuff on my phone ready to go when the reading urge strikes me. And I have a ton of library books piled up and I have a ton of books. Oh, well, everyone, everywhere. Oh, if we're going to discuss what's piled next to my bed, Lissa, then right. so many, so many things. <laughs> So I have no idea what I'm going to read. Um, I mean, I kind of keep going back and rereading The City in the Middle of the Night because um, I've like had a three-month-long book hangover from that book still. Wow. I know. So I have that book on hold, uh, the paper copy of it. Uh, I, mean, I clearly need to put the audio on hold as well, and it's... I checked my my library account this morning and it said it was in transport. I'm kind of happy for you. In, so, yeah. 
So maybe you can at least try it to see if you find it interesting. And I'll try Foundry Side. Okay. And we'll stare at our to-be-read piles next to our beds. So many. We'll see what happens. Maybe that's our plan for our next episode. We'll see what so happens. So the city in the middle of the night, is it like, does it veer more towards science fiction or more towards fantasy? Is it is it hard? Is it... Um, I maybe infamously at this point spent a lot of time ranting and raving about how great it was on social media and referring to it as a book about snuggling. <laughs> um, that was that book. Um, I think that it's science fiction and all of the people who talk about it online, t- most of them, not all, most of them tend to talk about it being about like a tidally locked planet and, um, you know, this futuristic society. Yeah, it's and just the setting. What humans do when, when societies change for various reasons of climate change. Uh-huh. And it was about people to me and how you figure out your family when things change unexpectedly and how you figure out, you know, snuggling. Yeah. It's not like a romance. It's like about connection and how you figure yourself out. Okay. That's, that's good to know because I was in my head, it was kind of a, like a space book. If that makes sense, like spacey science fiction. So in my right. head, I was I was putting in a pocket with like All Systems Red, which was a novella I read earlier this year about a murder robot. But clearly, snuggling and murder robots are different things. So I will look forward to trying that. And and we can just report back on how we did with these things. Don't look for the murder <laughs> robots in this book. It was a really good book, Lissa. Uh, and I hope that I a little novella. I believe you. It, it, it's a really terrific novella. I think you would like it. Um, and what was it called? Uh, All Systems Red. All Systems mm-hmm. Red. It's okay. just a just very short novella. Uh, but I liked it just very, very much. Uh, so we're. I think if you know you're getting into murder robots, that well, that's a thing it, then. I will leave you to, to find out it, it's uh, how it goes for you. I think that you will like the murder robot more than you think that you will. A murder robot is what it calls itself. Uh, oh, so excellent! How very self-aware. <laughs> yes, that's kind of the kind of the deal with the whole thing. The Dan Brown in the Master Class I'm taking is talking about finding a moral gray area to talk about. So your moral gray area mm-hmm. in your book is about is about um, climate change and, and and families and what's going on. And, and in Murder Robot, All Systems Red, it's like Murder Bot One. Um, it's its other <laughs> title, I think. It's about sentience and uh, artificial intelligence that kind of gray area of where you're seesawing back and forth between those two things so so our plan is next time we're gonna read a bunch of science fiction books that we've recommended to each other here and see how it goes yes it's a bold plan it's almost like book wars you know like which one will be crowned king here and we may just have a split decision since Foundry side got five stars from me and I don't give five star reviews. I just don't. And I've given several lately and it's kind of shocking to me. Maybe I'm just becoming a softie. I don't know. Uh, Maybe you're finding your stuff. Maybe I'm finding my stuff. Yeah, that could be true. Maybe. I love talking to you about books. I love talking to you about books. Hopefully somebody's listening to talk about (laughs) You know what, Lisa? I'm not even sure I care. So I'm I actually mean, not even sure I care either. <laughs> it would be nice and all, and I think that uh, the people would might 
find some books that they also like, but mainly I'm just thrilled always to spend time with you. Well, if anybody listened to this conversation to this point where we said we don't care about <laughs> We you, care, we care. The way to prove <laughs> to us that you listened and help us care about you is to send us your book recommendations, um, which you could do by emailing us at thebookevangelist at gmail.com. Um, because mostly what we care about is talking about books with you. That's right. So um, feel free to send us your recommendations as well. If they are science fiction, that's even better. But kind of whatever. We want to hear about why you like it. Sounds good to me. All right. Until next time. Until next time. See you, Alyssa. Bye, Marion. Bye.